This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase. With the promo code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, February 17th, 2016 from Slate. It's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. So I'm here in Florida. Believe me, I am hurrying back to New York where the cold, chilly consequences of Supreme Court appointments wait. Can't really think about these things correctly here in the warmth. So I get the impression that some people think the Constitution's a little like an Ikea manual, where not only they tell you exactly how things need to be done to assemble this, you know, country slash hutch, but they give you a tiny little tool to do it that you've never seen elsewhere, but works really well with the Constitution slash the manual. But that's not what the Constitution is, right? So Obama says there's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't confirm a candidate for the Supreme Court in election year. That is true. And then Ted Cruz says, Obama's speaking nonsense. We can advise and consent. And if we don't want to consent, we could not consent for any reason we want. Guess what? That is also true. Now, to me, though, the question is, if the Senate is going to be obstreperous, what do you do as the president? Who do you nominate? Word from the White House is they're not thinking of anyone overtly political. But I've seen all the choices. You probably have, too. In fact, the New York Times writing up these choices wrote about five or six qualified people. And here's here's how they did it. So they talked about Merrick Garland. I will quote from you from the uh, section called Background. Background. White man. That's that's the first words. <laughs> Sri Srinivasan. Background. Indian American man. Okay. Listen, I'm not naive. I know that that stuff matters and it's important to have a diversified Supreme Court like America. And when the first of anything, like the first Indian American or the first Hindu gets on the Supreme Court, that'll be that'll be a great day for, for all of us, right? But just to have white man listed before, oh yeah, graduated top in his class at Harvard as background for the Supreme Court seems a little shocking until maybe I realized I was just not reading it correctly. It's like a pyramid of qualifications. Or maybe it's more like, all right, let's try to play the game. Who are we talking about? Here are the, here's a background of one of the candidates. Background, white woman. All right. Now I'm down to 180 million Americans. Born in Indiana. All right. Now I'm down to about I don't know, 20 million Americans attended Harvard Law School. Now down to like 130 people. Clerked for Judge David R. Hansen of the Eighth Circuit, a Reagan appointee, a longtime public defender in Iowa. Wait a minute, it's Jane Kelly. That's how you're supposed to read the background. Scalia actually talked about diversity on the court. He talked about how a born-again Christian wasn't there, how a Westerner wasn't on the court. He said, California doesn't count. Those are Scalia's words, not mine. You know what? Those are my words, too. And he noted that everyone on the court went to Harvard or Yale Law School. Maybe we're defining meritocracy too narrowly. But I still get back to who you nominate. There's a little game theory here. If they're going to shut it down, why not either swing for the fences or make a decision that will be a little shocking? As long as they're going to delay, you can withdraw it at any time. And why make Sri Srinivasan twist in the wind like Vayu? Yes, 
He is a Hindu. I've referenced a Hindu God. I love his background. We would have a court of four Catholics, three Jews, and a Hindu. And in their next restrictive country club decision, the court can rule that they all get to join a country club. Isn't that nice? So my point is, though, if you're going to get shot down, here's what Obama should do. For my next Supreme Court appointment, I'm going with Alan Alda. We loved him in MASH. Alan Alda. Why not? Right? They're going to they're gonna shut him down anyway. For our next Supreme Court appointment, thought about this. Someone that could bring liberals, Democrats, Republicans, conservatives all together. He's sound, Obama sounded a little like Nixon. Anyway, thought about this. Jeff Dunham and Peanut. With the caveat, Peanut has to have his own little tiny seat. And listen, if you put a ventriloquist on the Supreme Court, he can make Clarence Thomas sound like he's talking, huh? How about that? You didn't think of that. For my next Supreme Court appointment, I understand you guys are going to want to delay. I'm going to throw this one out there. The Rock. You don't know what The Rock's been cooking. Come on, guys. He's no less qualified than Harriet Myers. On the show today, remember how I told you I was here in Florida? Well, I ain't here on business. I'm only here for fun, but I'm going to turn it into a little business when I spiel about some other spiels that I've been exposed to. But first, Pagan Kennedy, journalist and inquisitive human being on the question of where does innovation come from? Seems to me like you got two choices these days, R.E. your face. Hate your face and bloody it up. Or keep your face okay, but hate your wallet. Possibly go into debt, be forced to go to the dollar store, and buy the hack of face blades for a dollar. There is a solution. It is the only solution that combines amazing quality razors and low prices. It is Harry's. Harry's are German-engineered. Five-blade cartridges, close, comfortable shave, no cuts, no burns. The quality is guaranteed. What do they mean by guaranteed? They mean a full refund if you're not happy. It's really half the price of a leading brand. And I don't know how you judge quality, but let's say twice the quality, because that goes well with half the price. And you could do the math. It's four times the value. We have a special offer for $15. You could get a starter set and we'll give you $5 off the starter set or $5 off any thing you want to order in your first order with the promo code GIST. So stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter code GIST at checkout. The idea of the inventor takes many forms from the tinkerer in his garage to Xerox Park, which is a big corporate funded invention laboratory. But in some ways, there's a lot of similarity. Ideas have to come from some place, some person's head, and whether they're cross-pollinated or eventually fed into a big machine, what is the source of those ideas? Inspiration used to mean breathed there by God. Pagan Kennedy has been exploring this in her new book, Inventology, how we dream up things that change the world. Hello, Pagan. Hello. Am I saying it right? Is it more inventology or inventology? You know what? You are free to invent a pronunciation. So that brings me to, so you're saying that I'm free to pronounce uh, the word. What's the role of rules? No rules, it would seem to me, would be antithetical to invention. It would be too chaotic, but too many rules would also hamper the inventive mind. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, you know, when I started this, actually, this book for me came out of doing the uh, Who Made That column for Mm -hmm. the New York Times Magazine. So week by week, I was telling the story of how an object came to be, like the sippy cup or the cell phone. 
And I was beginning to notice these patterns between and among the inventors. So, you know, one week I'd be talking to the cell phone guy and think, well, that sounds an awful lot like the trampoline guy, you know, the way he thought about this, the whole method he used. And and then I began to really keep people on the phone and really try to dig into their methods, even though there was no space for it in my column, just out of pure personal curiosity. What are the big patterns? So one of the things I began to notice as I was doing this column week to week was this a, a whole lot of things did not come out of corporate labs. You know, it was just kind of stunned at how many user inventors developed things from surgeons to pilots to people in their kitchens, you know, who were inflamed with the desire to do anything from make a Xerox machine to make lipstick. And then as I began working on the book, I found that there's an an entire area of economic study in which people study user inventors and actually look at how uh, familiar objects came to be and track it back to the origins. And they actually create um, percentages, give us studies where we can look at the percentages of user inventors in each kind of invention. So, for instance, surgeons invent almost all of the major surgical tools, which Mm -hmm. does not sound highly surprising, but, you know, that pattern plays out just very strongly in, in a lot of fields, in farm equipment, in you know, all the kind of gizmos we use at home. And so what I began to see was there was this sort of invisible nation of inventors out there. For this type of inventor, uh, knowing something about the problem that nobody else has seen is really essential. So does that mean that they're a super user of the thing they're intimately familiar with, or does it mean that they're They've been studying it from a different angle rather than an invention angle. How do they become aware? If you want to have a good problem, one, uh, the first thing is to have skin in the game. So, and to have skin in the game over a long period of time. So an example of that is uh, the Times actually assigned me to go find out the origin of the ball hopper, which is that basket-like thing that you put on top of tennis balls and they pop in. Yeah, it's more fun than and, tennis. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And in fact, the designer, Jake Stapp, was, he was thinking about fun because he was this tennis pro in the 1960s who was running two tennis camps. And there were so many balls on the courts, thousands of balls, that he himself had to pick up every day because the kids wouldn't do it. They'd run off and get bored. And so he was thinking about a way to get kids to pick up balls from tennis courts, but he really, really cared about the problem because the poor guy was, you know, doing it hours and hours a day. So he actually spent a lot of time in his imagination kind of simulating different ways you could do this and finally came up with this ball hopper. And that's one of those inventions, and there seem to be uh, two distinct kinds. One is the kind of invention that once you introduce it, everyone says, why didn't I think of that? I mean, it's so simple. But then there's the other type that's like the Google algorithm where you say, oh, my God, I have no This is like magic, but I have no idea how anyone could think of that. Yeah, exactly. And I think those sort of hidden in plain sight 
inventions are so fascinating because, yeah. like the case of the ball hopper, okay, you would think as soon as people started playing tennis with rubber balls, somebody would see that. But no, it takes a hundred years for that idea to come. But once it comes, yeah. Everybody thinks it's obvious. In fact, Jake Stapp's daughter told me that, you know, it drove them crazy because everybody would look at it, her father's invention and say, oh, that's not really obvious, you know. <laughs> uh, same thing with the rolling suitcase. That's one that boggles the mind because we can't believe it came about in the 70s and 80s and started to really catch on in the 90s. But you know, why? Why wouldn't people have seen that a long time ago? But in and fact, so- with that one, there was, uh, there was a... a- it came in modes. And even if we yeah. say now that the rolling suitcase was so obvious, not only was it not obvious, the first iteration, which was like, those, as you described, that rolling suitcase on a leash, that existed for a number of years before anyone decided to, you know, or anyone figured out how to do the telescopic uh, handle thing. Yes, exactly. So in the 70s, there was this luggage executive named Bernard Sato, and he had the idea of putting a normal-looking piece of luggage on wheels. But obviously the problem with that is it will just flop over when you turn a corner. And that uh, a pilot came in along named Robert Plath. And the pilots in the – I guess they had to also lug their flight logs in the 70s and 80s. So he was, had a lot to lug through the airport every day. He – began to tinker with this in his garage and eventually developed pretty much the prototype of the rolling suitcase we have today with the wheels that tips up on its side with just two wheels and that firm handle. Um, But that's the kind of solution you only see when you are struggling with a problem for so long that you have to think your way past the sort of half solution to get to the non-obvious solution that will later seem obvious to everybody. So you say you got interested, you'd keep these inventors on the phone, and you began noticing patterns. All of those things are hallmarks of an inventive mind, to be interested, to be curious, and to press further. And then the big thing is to notice the patterns. So what got me interested in this book was an article he wrote for the Times where you talked about the concept of super encounterers, people who are just interested in so many things, and they kind of can't but help to connect the dots between those things, and it gives them great ideas. Yeah, I got interested in serendipity almost out of necessity. We've just been talking about people who are very, very good at seeing problems or happen to be in a life situation where they have a kind of front row seat. Now, there's a whole other kind of inventor who finds sort of a pre-existing solution. An example of this would be, you know, penicillin or the smoke detector, which was a guy was trying to make uh, an anti-static machine and somebody lights up a cigarette in his lab and this the meter goes crazy because it's responding to the smoke, eventually he realizes, oh, I've solved the problem of the battery-powered smoke detector, which nobody was really able to build up until that point. You know, we all know those kind of stories of somebody stumbling across something that doesn't have an obvious application and, and eventually realizing it fits with a big problem. 
One last question, and it's about the idea of super encounterers, which we should credit uh, Sanda Ertelez, who's this is one of those great insights that came from the field of library science. <laughs> she talks about how some people just seek out information, and when they encounter more information than others, they make connections. Now, you wrote about it in the context of serendipity and inventions, but I recognize that. And I said, I'm like that, but my invention is the gist every day. <laughs> Maybe I just make better rhetorical arguments. Does that count? Would that count within the definition of super encounterers? Someone who's never going to invent anything except a new sentence? I think Dr. Erdelitz certainly would say that counts. And I, um, you know, I, as I wrote in that piece, I think this quality is really important for journalists because often, I'm sure this happens to you and it happens to every journalist I know, that you start sniffing around in some area and you have no idea what the story is, but you're you're picking up interesting clues and piecing them together. And I think even, you know, if you if you feel like you know what the story is too early, that's that's probably a bad sign. You know, it's that ability to keep an open mind and keep collecting the clues that really kind of wins the day. Yeah, I'll take it. Pagan Kennedy yeah. is the author of Inventology, How We Dream Up Things That Change the World. Thank you, Pagan. Thank you so much. Don't miss out. Slate's parenting podcast will be live Thursday night in Brooklyn. If you're in one of the boroughs or even New Jersey, Connecticut, anywhere in the mid-Atlantic, come watch a live taping of Mom and Dad Are Fighting, hosted by Allison Benedict and Dan Coyce, happening Thursday, which is tomorrow at 7 o'clock in the Bell House in Brooklyn. This one is all about city parenting. All right, there's a roundtable with a children's artist, Matt De La Pena, Lori Berkner, you know, Lori Berkner Band, and Rebecca Steed. Plus, Allison's husband shows up to share some parenting triumphs and fails, blowing the whistle on Allison. If you're a Slate Plus member, you get a 30% discount on your ticket purchase. Don't miss a chance to see mom and dad are fighting at the Bell House in Brooklyn tomorrow at 7. For tickets, go to slate.com slash live. And now the spiel, push over and move them big feet. So I've taken a three-day break. I've filled my day with sun, relaxation, and entertainment. Last night, it was yet another visit down the river as a 66-year-old man from New Jersey relocated to Fort Lauderdale. And somehow this made news? What? Oh, yes, it was Bruce Springsteen. He played his entire album, The River. And the parts I liked were where he didn't just play the songs, but he kind of explained them. Now, I didn't bootleg the concert, but I think I could recreate it right here and still not run afoul of copyright laws. So sometimes, you know, in his explanations, it took unexpected twists, like uh, like on this part of the title track. Although technically these weren't two things, it was just one thing, because I was asked to join the wedding coat union. For years, wedding coats were not unionized, but then wedding coat local 483 got involved. So once they give you the union card, they're like, "And son, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to design these wedding coats." I was a riveter at first, and then I moved on to sleeves, so I didn't really need to get married. But, you know, there are all these wedding coats around you, and you start thinking of marriage. And Well, I left that part out of the song. I just jump right to the next part. 
And in other songs, I thought this was pretty big of him. You know, he is 66, he's he's a man of the people, but sometimes he leaves out the female perspective in his songs, you know? So what he did last night was he embodied some of the female characters he was talking about, as on Out in the Street. Put on your best dress, baby. Oh, I don't know, baby, I'm kind of tired. And fix your hair I just went to the salon anyway. A party? I've been working that hard line. I know, and Bruce, you brought the whole band. Hi, Steve. How you doing? Oh, gosh. You're not listening to me, are you, Bruce? But in a bit of counter-programming, you know what else was on last night and the night before? The Dog Show. I love The Dog Show. The Westminster Kennel Club and the announcer, the in-stadium announcer at MSG. I love that guy. Michael Lefave, his name is. Listen, listen to him. The name means small dog with curly hair, giving the appearance of a living powder puff. I love him. He brings a regal air to the only competition where the participants would really just rather be chasing a ball and then being left to lick themselves. Well, I guess that's true of the NFL also. But anyway, as I heard a lot of the descriptions, I got to thinking, maybe these traits are, say, nice bits of trivia. The name is literally translated as sand skin or sandpaper-like coat. They're kind of gussied up in genteel grandiosity. Tales of 16th century pirates and shipwrecks surround the Coton de Tuliar. But they're not really descriptions of what dogs do today. They seem irrelevant to, say, 99.99% of people who actually own dogs. Like, how relevant is this about the Lasso Apso? The Lasso Apso is an ancient Tibetan breed, long serving as a watchdog inside homes and monasteries. So really, shouldn't we have a description of the dog traits that we value more today? A description like this. Tales of that time he ate the Thanksgiving turkey off the counter. Follow the American short-haired terrier. An excellent photographic companion. He holds still while you put a hat on his head as he poses for pictures on social media. Playful, obedient. He's an excellent flatulence companion. Not smelling too bad himself, but willingly taking the blame when someone else breaks wind. Say hello to Terrier 238, Kanye. And then I got to thinking, we need descriptions, not just of dogs, but of types of people. Like this presidential election, everyone's talking about lanes, right? The conservative, the Christian, the outsider. But what are lanes, if not breeds? The establishment Republican Known for his even temperament and serious disposition, the establishment Republican is prized for his soothing calls of economic stewardship and peace through strength. Easily distracted by more volatile breeds, the establishment Republican excels in packs and with families defined as one man, one woman. Confident, but not overly courageous, equally comfortable in country clubs and chambers of commerce, the establishment Republican is a calm, even low-energy companion, though he becomes agitated by sudden change and squirrels. Say hello to establishment Republican 87, Jeb. You could broaden this idea way out. The North American white male. 
The white male comes in four standard varieties. The most common is known for his goatee and cargo shorts, or in more formal mode, tucked in golf shirt with his own company's insignia. He wears a smartphone or Blackberry attached to the belt on the outside. Breed standards call for either a mustache or no mustache, but with a mustache, expect a more feisty temperament and references to back in my day. Known as a good drinking companion, especially with others in the breed, he prides himself on his prominent calves, which have somehow thickened considerably since high school. Say hello to North American white male 132, Chuck. Who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces The Gist. Her ears should be V-shaped with carriage rather to the side of the head, not pointing to the eyes. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is a working guard dog without equal. He has a unique ability to protect livestock. We see in Andy Bowers, the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, the lack of a coat on the hairless variety. It renders him unsuited for most hunting activities. The Gist, a little like the skipper key. Alert, Curious, confident, intense, but with a dash of mischief and impudence. Though I've met some skipper keys, they don't smell that good. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>